appreciate uh, the presence of everyone tonight. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians this evening. 1 Corinthians. Appreciate those who have led us today, those who have led the singing and led the prayers and led our thoughts at the Lord's table. Appreciate the good work everyone's done today. And uh, as many of you know, Cherry's not feeling real well today. She, she's at home. So that gave me a chance to break with my usual practice. I sat over here today. And that was a privilege for me to be able to sit with, uh, we don't have, all our young people are not over there. We have young people all across the building, of course, but uh, many of them are sitting there and listening to them sing. And uh, just uh, a good experience, and I just appreciate that opportunity. That was, that was really good. I'm going to talk about one of the outstanding chapters in the New Testament today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so turn in your Bibles over there. While you're turning over there, I'll recall... Uh, Something that happened to me when I was about 12 years old. When I was uh, about 12 years old, uh, I played youth football. And in order to raise money for the team and for the league, uh, we were given these boxes of candy bars to sell. And maybe you, uh, you're at least familiar with the idea, if not that particular uh, selling candy bars, not that particular act. And so, uh, and so I, that was my, I had, I had to do that. It was my responsibility to sell some, some candy bars to help support the team and the league and all of that kind of stuff. Now, now we were not allowed to go to the church building at worship services and sell our wares at the building. That just, that just not, not acceptable behavior in our house. Uh, we were very much discouraged from, uh, you know, making the house of the Lord a place of merchandise. And so that, that was not an option for me to take my candy bars to the church building and send them to all the, all the members. What I had to do is go door to door in the neighborhood. And just to be honest, it, it was brutal. <laughs> I, was not, I was not very, very good at it, but I tried. You know, I got out there and I tried. And I would uh, go, to, go to one house and, and ring the doorbell. And, and after a while, you know, they, they would come to the door and they'd see this 12-year-old, red-headed, bespectacled uh, boy, I want to sell him a candy bar. And that, that wasn't hard to turn down. And then, and then I would go to the next house, and, and nobody would answer the door. And then I would kind of go to the next house. And I, and I was convinced that the people that answered the door, they were calling their neighbors and telling them, little boy's going to come, he's going to try to sell you a candy bar, don't answer the door. And I just thought, what a, what a waste of time. What, what a waste of time and energy and effort that is for me to go door to door trying to sell these candy bars. Just, just, a, just a completely wasted effort. Now we're going to come back to that, so just hold on to that idea. We're going to come back to it later. First Corinthians 15, you may know that Paul spends, it's a long chapter, but spends the entirety of the chapter talking about the resurrection of Christ. Now, the resurrection of Christ is, oh, very important in, in the gospel. In fact, he goes on in several verses here to say that if there is no resurrection of Christ from the dead, our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, you're still in your sins, our loved ones who had become Christians and who are now dead, who we think have gone to be with the Lord, they haven't gone to be with the Lord. And all, and all, all of our efforts are just are just meaningless, and our commitment to Christ is meaningless. In fact, he ends up by saying in verse 19, 
If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And so the resurrection of Jesus is just, uh, just it's, its importance is just immeasurable when it comes to the gospel. And so he's going to establish the fact of the gospel and draw out some of the implications of the gospel. In verse 12 we read that there are some who are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And so there were people in the church there who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. They're calling that into question and really simply denying that idea that there, are the, uh, that, uh, there is a, a resurrection of the dead. Now, we don't know exactly why they were saying that. At least I don't know exactly why they were saying that. It may be that there are some leftover from Greek philosophy that denied the resurrection of the, of the body. And so it may be that some were holding on to that. It may be that some had this uh, false sense of kind of an advanced spirituality that, that in some way they, they had already achieved the highest state of spirituality, and so they were denying the resurrection of the dead. We might see some of that kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, and so some of you may think that you've already attained that, that, uh, that development, that you are already spiritual, so maybe in some way that lent itself to their denial of the resurrection. Chapter 4 and verse 8, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You've already become kings without us. So Paul's speaking, I think, a little sarcastically in that particular passage. And so it may be that they think they've already attained. And so they're denying that there's going to be a future resurrection. Of course, in our age, people would deny the resurrection of, of Christ and general resurrection on the basis that it's not scientific. People don't arise from the dead. People are not raised from the dead. That's just not scientifically possible. And so, and so there are deniers of the resurrection even today. But whatever they're thinking, they were making, Paul says, a serious mistake. And he goes, out, goes on to talk about the resurrection of the dead here in this chapter. We can divide it up into three parts. The first part is found in verses 1 through 11. And what Paul argues is that Christ has been raised from the dead. That, that Christ has been raised from the dead. And so he wants to establish that fact right here at the beginning. And so verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. And so I'll remind you about the gospel that I preached. Now you received this. I preached it and you received it. And he goes on to say that it will save you if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And here's the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to others as well. And so, you know, I want to remind you of what I preached when I was with you. I preached that Jesus was raised from the dead. And you believe that. You, you accepted it at that time. He establishes the fact of the resurrection in two ways. Incidentally, these two ways are also found in Acts chapter 2, the Scriptures. Now, he doesn't cite Scripture in this particular passage, but he appeals to the fact 
that the resurrection of Jesus is, is affirmed by Scripture. And so you see that in verse, in, in verse 4. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, Psalm 16 is cited in Acts, the second chapter. So that may be the Scripture that he has in mind here, but, but he supports his statement that Christ has been raised by appealing to Scripture. And also by eyewitness testimony, which also is found in Acts, the second chapter. But you see it here in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then more than 500 brethren at one time. He appeared to James and all the apostles. And lastly, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. And so Paul establishes the fact of the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's supported by Scripture. It's supported by our, wit, our eyewitness experience. I preached that to you, and, and you were convinced when I was there. You were convinced. You accepted my teaching. Then in the following verses, verse 12 and following, he exposes the contradiction inherent in their position. And so their position is, we receive that Christ was raised from the dead, but we believe there is no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul exposes that there in verse 12. If Christ has preached that He's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there's a contradiction there. Christ has been raised, we know that, you believe that, and yet some of you are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And so how can you deny the resurrection and affirm the resurrection of Christ? In the following verses, he discusses the implications if Christ is not raised. We've already referred to some of those. If, Christ, if there's no resurrection, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. He goes on to say in verse 17, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So here are some implications if Christ is not raised from the dead. Now are you ready to accept those implications? You know, If not, if you're not ready to accept those implications, maybe you ought to rethink your position that the dead are not raised. That's sort of the argument. And then beginning in verse 20, now what if Christ has been raised? Here are some implications if Christ is raised from the dead. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, and so forth. If Christ is raised from the dead, what are the implications of that? Well, if Christ is raised from the dead, well, the rest of us will be raised from the dead. And so Christ is raised the first fruits. He's the first one. And, that, and His resurrection suggests and even guarantees that others will follow. Others will be raised as well. And so He's drawing out the implications of the two positions. If Christ is not raised and if there is no resurrection, some pretty, pretty severe implications. But if Christ is raised from the dead, well, then all of us will be raised from the dead. And then in, beginning, in, uh, beginning in verse 35, here's the, the third section. This is the longest section from verse 35 all the way 
to the end of the chapter, he discusses this question, how are the dead raised? How are they raised? Not, not by what power are they raised, but as he says there in the last part of verse 35, what kind of body do they have? With what kind of body do they come? And so you're saying that we're raised from the dead. When we're raised from the dead, what are we going to be like? What kind of body are we going to have? And he explains that beginning again, verse 35, and going down through about verse 57. And here's what he says. He says, you know, we, the body that we're going to be raised with is, uh, is not like the body that we have now. And he illustrates that in verse 36. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow you do not sow, uh, the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And so a lot of people have gardens or grew up on the farm. So if you plant a kernel of corn, put that in the ground, uh, you bury it in the ground, and it germinates, what, what comes up? Does what come up, comes up out of the ground look like that kernel of corn? Not really. It's a plant. It's green. It grows. It has a stalk. It has leaves. And so you put one kind of body into the ground, and it comes out of the ground a different kind of body. That's, that's the idea. And so, come down to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And so the body that houses our spirits in the resurrection is not going to be like the body that we have today. It's, this body is physical, limited in many ways, subject to corruption and death. But that body will be, will be different. In fact, Paul further describes that body in Philippians chapter 2, uh, where he says in verse 21 that God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And so we have a body in this humble state, but it's going to be transformed in, into a glorious state. So the body that we have now and the body that when we die is planted into the ground, that body will decay and go back to the, to the ground, the dust where it came from. But a spiritual body will house our spirit after this life is over. In the final exhortation, beginning in verse 54, Paul um, talks about the victory that those in Christ will have at His resurrection. And so look at verse 54. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so there's a kind of a quick survey of this rather lengthy chapter. Now, embedded in this chapter are two sections that I'm going to spend the rest of the time on tonight. 
Uh, one of them is here in verse 58. But the other one comes earlier in verses 33 and 34. So let's go back to verses 33 and 34, talk about that, and then we'll work our way over to verse 58. Don't have a PowerPoint tonight. Had one, but for some reason it didn't transfer up here. And so open your Bibles, you know, that'll be your visual aid tonight, or use, use your phone or, or whatever, and just follow along. And so we entitled the sermon, uh, If Christ is Raised. If Christ is raised. What effect does that have on our lives? How should that affect what I do from day to day? The decisions I make, what, what effect that should that have on me? Well, these two verses answer that question. Verse 33. Now, do, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And so here's a word of exhortation. Uh, somewhat uh, negative, I suppose. He's trying to get them to stop doing some things that are wrong. He warns them uh, against doing some things that could lead to further problems. But if Christ is raised from the dead, you need to be careful about associating with people who are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And I suppose that's the immediate application of what he says in verse 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, there are some among you who are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And you know what? If there's no resurrection of the dead, that's going to have some pretty strong implications concerning the way we live our lives. In fact, if you look at verse 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and, uh, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's, no if there's no resurrection of the dead, hey, let's just live it up, you know. If the grave is the end of it all, hey, let's party every day. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul says, look, you need to be careful about hanging out with those people who are denying the resurrection. That's going to affect the choices that you make from day to day. Of course, this is almost a proverb, isn't it? Evil companions corrupt good morals, and it would apply in many situations. Here's a specific area where it applies to the resurrection deniers. But the Bible has many, many warnings about being careful who we associate with. I always think of the, the very first psalm, the very first one, Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. So if you want to be blessed by God, if you want to be in good standing with God, you be careful who your companions are. Don't walk with the wicked. Don't stand with the sinners. Don't sit with the scoffers. And understand, as we go through our day-to-day -day lives, there are going to be lots of situations where we associate with those who are not Christians and even those who are not spiritually minded. But you be careful about the influence that they have on you. If you're not careful, it's going to affect your lives, and you're going to find yourself making some bad decisions. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is another passage that illustrates the point. Verse 14. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What is a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We're the temple of the living God. Just as God said, 
I'll dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch anything that is unclean. And so, and so be careful who you associate with. We, we don't have fundamental uh, principles of our lives in common with many other people. And so be careful about that. We're going to have to do business with people. And we have friends on a certain level with those who are not very spiritually minded. But, but you be careful about that because evil companions corrupt good morals. Now, I couldn't think of a better illustration of that uh, personal illustration than 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 1 through 3 and the situation Solomon got himself into. Verse 1 says, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They'll turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. If 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. So there's close association. He loved them. <laughs> and they influenced him away from the Lord to the point where even Solomon was participating with them in their idolatry. And so if we associate with people whose behavior is ungodly in word and deed, it may not be very long before ours is as well. A lot of people in trouble. Now just kind of catch up to you know, where I am here. A lot of people that you know who are in trouble. They're either in trouble at home or they're in trouble at school. They're in trouble at work. They're in trouble with the law. A lot of people who are in trouble can trace their problems back to, well, you know, I had a friend. <laughs> I, I, see, you see, I had this friend. And through his influence, I began to make bad choices. And before you know it, I found myself in trouble. Choose our friends carefully. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Walk with wise men and you'll be wise as well. And so, verse 33, 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived now. Bad company corrupts good morals. There's a specific application to those resurrection deniers in the church at Corinth. But we made a, a broader application, I think legitimately so. And then he says, verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought. Now that's the New American Standard Bible. If you are reading the English Standard Version, it reads, wake up from your drunken stupor. And so this idea of sobriety here, be, be sober, does often have the, sort of the association with drunkenness. And so uh, be, be sober as, as you ought. Uh, wake up from your drunken stupor. New King James Version says, awake to righteousness. And so there's this idea of waking up and thinking clearly, sobering up and think clearly might be the idea. So he tells the Corinthians, okay, guys, look, sober up and start thinking clearly. You know, you're not thinking clearly in what you're doing at this point. So he told them, don't be deceived. And here he says, wake up. And so it seems that they were not giving a whole lot of serious thought to the the issue that these resurrection deniers uh, were uh, promoting. 
In the book of 2 Timothy, look at that passage, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 uh, and in, in verse 5, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, Paul tells Timothy to be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, be sober in all things. And then in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so, and so be, be sober, be awake, wake up, be on the alert, watch out. There's danger ahead. So you've got these resurrection deniers. Be, be careful, wake up. You, know, so you, you act like you've been asleep for a while. So it's time to, to wake up and see what's going on. It's easy for us to be drawn away from the straight and narrow gradually, step by step, slowly drifting away. That's easy to do. Isn't we? Maybe we've been in that situation or, or at least known of others in that situation. So just kind of gradually, bit by bit, just drifting away. And you wake up one day and, well, what, what in the world happened? And so when we stop reading as often, stop reading Scripture as often, stop praying as often, Stop attending as often. More time spent on non-spiritual things, more worldly music, more worldly movies and entertainment. But no, before we know it, we're just lulled into a bad place spiritually. Just, just, just asleep at the wheel and just gradually drifting until we're in a bad place spiritually. Just can't allow that to happen. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, again, uses some of these same ideas in verse 4. He says, You brethren, you're not in darkness, that that day would overtake you as a thief. You're sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. And let us not sleep as do others. Let's be alert and be sober. And so, so we're, we're not in the dark about these things. Be on the alert. Be awake. Watch out. Be careful. Be vigilant in your devotion. And then going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, Paul at the end, this is verse 34, says, Stop sinning. <laughs> That's about as straightforward as you could get, isn't it? Stop, stop sinning. New American Standard Bible uh, tries to capture that present tense of, of, the, of the command as if they were sinning. They were, in the, they were involved in sinning when he wrote this. It's time to stop. Stop sinning. There seems to be a lot of sinning going on in the church at, at Corinth. You have the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man has his father's wife. Chapter 6, they're going to law with each other over matters of this world. Uh, they're committing fornication at the end of chapter 6. Chapter 11, verse 21, when they're supposed to be observing the Lord's Supper, one is drunken and another is hungry. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Seems to be a lot of that kind of thing going on in the church at Corinth. And so Paul says, look, it's time to stop. Stop sinning. Just put a stop to it. You know better, or you should know better. And so Paul chastises them for it. And he says, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. I speak this to your shame. I, I really think that most of us, we know right from wrong. We know sometimes we get involved in things or say things or do things. We, we know it's wrong when we do it. It's not, a, it's not a matter of information and knowledge. It's just a matter of having the will not to do it. 
Jacob was talking about adultery this morning in, in the Bible class. And the, the vast majority of people acknowledge that committing adultery is wrong. I think 90%. And yet, he said one of the stats was 40% of men become involved in it. We, we know it's wrong. And yet, sometimes we end up doing the thing that we know is wrong anyway. Simply should not be. Do we want to be in a, a, a place in our life where the Lord says to us, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I speak this to your shame. <laughs> That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. What would he say to us? If we're in that position, we need to heed the words of Paul, stop sinning. Stop. Just stop it. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, that has an effect on our behavior. Uh, we make bad decisions. We get involved in sin. We're not sober-minded. We're not watchful. We're not careful about what we do. And so we, we need to, if we believe there's a resurrection of the dead, we need to live our lives in light of that every day. Now let's go to chapter, same chapter, but verse 58. Here's the second exhortation in the chapter. After it's all said and done, Paul, especially here in these last few verses, is, is talking about the victory that we have in the resurrection. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have the victory promised to us in the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So we'll highlight two or three elements here. It's interesting that he calls them beloved brethren, isn't it? There in verse 58. Therefore, not just beloved brethren, but, but my beloved brethren. Paul's been pretty critical of the Corinthians. He got on them pretty good. And he used some pretty strong language in his criticisms of them. And yet, he's still able to call them his beloved brethren. There's no animosity there. There's no ill will. In fact, it's because he loves them that he criticizes them and tries to bring them back into the way they ought to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And so I, I, I've written to you, I've written pretty strong letter to you, some really strong criticism. But look, it's because I love you. It, it, and I'm, I'm interested in your well-being, your spiritual well-being that I wrote to you in that way. Some have been critical of Paul. Remember some were saying, well, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And, and, yet, and yet Paul is still able to say, my, my beloved brethren, he knew them. They knew him. He had taught them. They had learned from him. They had spent a lot of time together. And so he assures them of his love for them. We, we may differ at times. We may even differ strongly at times. <laughs> and yet the love that we have for each other ought to prevail and really ought to be obvious. Uh, and uh, we ought to be confident in our love for one another Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14 calls love the perfect bond of unity. What, what binds us together? You know, what, what's, what's the rope that ties us all together and links us together? What's love? Love is the bond. It's the chain. It's, 
It's the, the rope that ties us all to one another. And Paul had that love for the Corinthians, and we need to have that for each other as well. He says, be steadfast and immovable. We'll, we'll handle those two together. It's interesting that uh, Paul, a little bit later, when Paul writes 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, abide in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. That from, a child, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, now you were taught. You got some good teaching when you were young. And, and I want you to remember that teaching. And I want you to remember the people that taught you those things. Your mother and your grandmother. And, and you just stick right with what you were taught. You abide in the things that you've learned and you'll be good. You'll, 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 you're not going to go astray. Paul knew that Timothy had been taught well and exhorts him not to depart from what he had been taught. Similar thing is true with, with Corinth. Paul knows what the Corinthians have been taught. He's the one that taught them. <laughs> he, he knows what they were taught. We talked about that in the very first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I taught you about the resurrection of Christ and you received it. I know you got some good teaching. I'm the one that taught you those things. And so, you don't depart from it. You be steadfast. You be immovable. If someone comes along and teaches you a different gospel, well, then you, you let him be accursed. That's Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, isn't it? But the idea is the same here. You, you be steadfast. You abide in the things that you've been taught, that you learned. And you don't depart from those. Those are going to make you wise unto salvation. Well, once we find the truth, well, once we find the truth, uh, we, we don't need to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's an expression found in Ephesians 4, verse 14. We, we have the truth. You, you hold on to the truth. The book of Proverbs says, Buy the truth and sell it not. And so, and so you find the truth and you stand firm. Do not be moved for fear or favor. Do not be persuaded by the smooth and fair speech of uh, those who would lead you astray or by philosophy and empty deception. Think especially about young people sometimes who leave home and venture out on their own and especially vulnerable. You, you remember what you were taught. You remember the people that taught those things to you. And you be strong. And you stand firm. And you be immovable. Don't, don't let anyone move you away from the truth of what you've learned. I, when I, whenever I read this and think about it, I, I think about here, here's, here's rushing water. It's rushing. Maybe in, in a flood we see this sometimes. Here's this water rushing down. But here's this concrete column at a bridge. And it's just... Everything else is being swept away by the rushing water, but that concrete column, it's firm and it's immovable and it's steadfast. And the water is rushing by, but the column won't be moved. You be like that column. <laughs> now don't be persuaded by smooth and fair speech. and Don't be deceived by philosophy and empty deception. Sometimes this or that trend will sweep through the church and draw people away. Be careful about, be careful about that. You, you remember what you've been taught. That's what Paul tells Timothy. 
You remember those who taught those things to you and determined not to be moved away from the faith. Be steadfast and immovable. And finally, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You see a correlation here? People always at work are less likely to be moved, right? Be steadfast, immovable, always working. So if we're always working to promote the Lord and His cause, well, then we're less likely to be moved away and swept away. So abound in the work, in, in everything from personal growth. And so that's part of the work of the Lord, isn't it? Personal growth, personal study, personal devotion, prayer, worship, those kinds of things. Regular attendance, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's part of the work of the Lord. Teaching Bible classes, having Bible classes in your homes or, or elsewhere. Being aware of your example around and the influence of others. That's the work of the Lord. You think about your influence. You think about your example and make sure that you're shining the light as it ought to be shown. And in the end, Paul gives them some great assurance. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, if you sell candy bars, <laughs> your labor might be in vain. I told you we're going to come back to that. <laughs> so here we are, all the way full circle. If you go to a door trying to sell candy bars to people, just cold calls, that might be a huge waste of time. Your, your labor might be in vain in that instance. But your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. It will never be in vain. Our labor promoting the Lord's cause and working for the Lord and building people up and personal growth, it'll never be in vain. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Paul tells Timothy in this chapter to pay close attention to himself, to your teaching, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. You do these things, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for others as well. Now, your work in the Lord is not in vain. At the very least, you're going to save yourself. All right? And you may save others along the way as well. And so, don't get discouraged about uh, doing the work in the Lord. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we wonder if, if what we're trying to do is having any effect at all. <laughs> you know? Am I reaching anybody at all? And there's a lot of us have those kinds of questions and doubts in our minds sometimes. But don't be discouraged. Your work in the world might be in vain, but your work in the Lord will never be. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. Verse 10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God's not going to forget your work. You know? God's not going to forget your work, what you're doing. And so our work in the Lord will never be in vain. And so here are two little passages, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 and 34. So be careful of your friends. 
stop sinning, sober up, and start thinking correctly. So, sort of a negative approach. Now, if Jesus is raised, this is how you ought to live. And at the end, there's sort of a positive approach. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So let's take that with us. Those of us who are convinced that Jesus is raised, and if Jesus is raised, we will be raised as well. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the day. We're thankful for the opportunity to meet together and to worship you. We pray, Father, that what we've done here today has been pleasing to you and has glorified you, that we have carried out your will in a way that brings honor to you. Father, we're thankful for your word, that we have access to it, that we can understand it, that we can read it, that we can know what we need to do to be pleasing to you so that we can have hope of eternal life. Help us, Father, since we are convinced that Jesus is raised from the dead, help us, Father, to think carefully about the choices we make in our lives, what we do and what we say, and the choices we make about our companions as well. Help us, Father, to um, avoid sin, to, to eliminate it from our lives. And then, on the other hand, Father, help us to stand firm in the faith, to be immovable, to be steadfast. Trials come and temptations come. Help us to stand where you would have us to stand. Help us continue to work, to push forward, to continue to grow personally and reach others with the gospel. Help us not to be discouraged when we don't get the results that we think we, we should. But help us to continue to trust in you, that you will give the increase, and that our work is never in vain. Help us, Father, to continue in these things. Help us to live as Christians should live, to exemplify uh, Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. If you're